Welcome to the McDonald Laurier Institute's Pod Bless Canada, the nation's premier podcast in public policy. My name is Shuvaloy Majumdar, Monk Senior Fellow for Foreign Policy here at the Institute. And I'm joined today once again by my friend and a great friend of the Institute, Ward Elcock, former CSIS director, has been looking after Canadian national security from the Cold War through the War on Terror, uh, and now on MLI's Advisory Council for National Security. Ward, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Uh, today, we wanted to talk a little bit about your perspectives with respect to the recent crisis that Canada finds itself embroiled with, with respect to China. Um, much talk has been centered around what is the architecture of the world that we're about to engage in? Are we looking truly at China as a, a trade war proposition or is it a new Cold War? You've got some experience in both aspects of what that might mean. What are your reflections on that? I think it's a lot less fraught than, than a Cold War. I think the reality is we're in a particular situation because of the arrest of the CFO of Huawei and mm -hmm. because there are some other issues such as the issue of Huawei and 5G and the American right. dis trade dispute with the Chinese right. that make it all much more complicated. Right. But the reality for Canada is, I think, that China is a trading partner, uh, has been a major trading partner for some time. We have an interest in it being a trading partner into the future. Right. But at the same time, we need to be sure that we've thought through what our relationship with China should be. How far do we want to go in a trading part in a trading relationship? And to some extent, all of this has put a spotlight on that issue because it has become clear, I think, to a lot of Canadians, perhaps even to the government, right. that the realities of dealing with China are not always easy to deal with, that the Chinese can be extremely aggressive. And if we go too far down the road of, if you will, kowtowing to China, to use an old sort of Chinese word, yes. we run the risk of, of losing some of the things that we think of as important, such as the rule of law or endangering the rule of law and so on and so forth. So I want to pick up a little bit specifically on Huawei itself. What kind of threat, if you could explain to Canadians, what kind of threat does Huawei specifically pose as such a serious concern to democracy and to Canadians? Demystify some of that for us, please. I think we need to step back a little bit from that. Sure. In a sense, and, and all of us have been guilty about it, we all talk about Huawei and and the threat it poses. Mm -hmm. The real threat is, is in fact, Chinese intelligence collection, not Huawei itself. It's Huawei would simply be a mechanism for Chinese intelligence collection. And that, it really goes to the issue of interception of communications um, is no longer an issue of uh, copper wires and, and putting alligator clips on copper wires. It's software. Right. Uh, and it, it's millions of lines of code that run telecommunications infrastructure around the world. Right. So if all of the equipment in, in the system is Huawei equipment, essentially you have millions of lines of code which manage the telecommunications infrastructure, which you may not be certain about, uh, which may be trapped, which may be backdoored to allow foreign intelligence service such as the Chinese, and that would be the most likely if you're thinking of Huawei, to t have access to telecommunications infrastructure in other countries, in including Canada, if we go down the road of a 5G network. Leaving aside the question of whether the 3G and 4G networks were adequately secured by the approach that the government took right. over those years. That's a question that's hard to answer with certainty, but the reality is, say, Nortel still existed, 
China would no more allow Nortel to be its major supplier uh, for telecommunications industry and infrastructure in, in China, then we should be allowing Huawei to be the provider of telecommunications infrastructure in this country. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, they, they would be able to access the data of Canadians, of Canadian companies. I suppose uh, you've seen recently... Well, in theory, if you if you built the software that handles all of the communications through the telecommunications infrastructure, right. then you have access to whatever you want, right. which then creates another problem, which is we're part of a, a North American telecommunications infrastructure, mm-hmm. let alone world telecommunications infrastructure, but, but we interface very directly with the, the American telecommunications network. To what extent does that, if the Americans go down the road of preventing Huawei from, Americans are going down the road of preventing Huawei from participating in its system, what happens if our system includes Huawei? Can those systems be linked without potential damage to the American system? I take your point that it's less about Huawei and more about the regime that would abuse Huawei and its uh, its access into into Canada and to Western markets. So let's talk a little bit more about the Chinese government. I'm curious, you've been CSIS director, you've kept Canadians safe from foreign interference through the tenure of your distinguished career. When you look at China and you you think about how it's engaging the world today or Western democracies or Canada and the way in which they try to shape public opinion, what would you say about Chinese influence operations inside Canada through whether it's proxies like cultural groups, it's diplomatic attaches, it's presence in university campuses. You know, we have a difficult time as a society finding that line between sovereignty, privacy, uh, and free speech. And I'd be curious what your reflections are on that. It's ultimately the job of a security service, domestic intelligence service that does counterintelligence to be looking for what are improper abuses of relationships between countries. Right. So it would be the service's job to look at activities by China or a number of other countries that cross the line from normal relationships. So Uh, at the end of the day, China is a trading partner. It's not an ally. It's not a friend. It's a trading partner. And we have interests in dealing with China, but we do need to be sure we understand what China is doing and what many Chinese entities in Canada are doing to ensure that none of those, in fact, cross the line. You know, it was interesting when the Chinese hacked the National Research Council a few years ago, then Prime Minister Stephen Harper named the Chinese as having sponsored the attack. Based on your experience as a public servant, when the service briefs cabinet or the prime minister of the country, at what point is a decision point on naming and shaming the instigator or the agitator? Do you see that there could be a utility to begin naming and shaming when China decides to deploy these types of tactics more aggressively, more assertively? Is that something that you think might actually encourage better behavior? Canada most recently did that in cooperation with the United States and a number of other countries. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some commentary at the time was that it wasn't Canada's comments weren't very aggressive in, in that respect. But, but nonetheless, Canada was part of the recent accusations that China had, Chinese hackers had, had been behind a number of attacks. Right. So, Extraordinary. So think in some it. sense, we have participated in those. Mm-hmm. But the reality of counterintelligence is that it, it's not always helpful to be that open. That particular case, it doesn't involve enormous cost. But sometimes if, if you're trying to discover the, the limits of, of operations by a foreign country, you don't want to talk about what the, the nature of the operations you've so far identified because 
you want to know more. Right. You may also want to talk about it because you may actually have other ways of, of addressing the issue without making all of the affair public right. and creating huge difficulties, international difficulties between Canada and, and some other country. Mm -hmm. uh, and you may also have gotten to the point, think back to the British who at, at one point controlled the uh, KGB resident in, in London mm -hmm. uh, at the time. You may also have a, a goal of recruiting some of the folks involved in those activities and in fact, running them, allowing them to pass information, inaccurate information or, or pointless information back to, to their base, but controlling the whole operation. Right. So the fact of good counterintelligence work, uh, you can have a success without actually having naming and shaming and all of what goes with it. Inevitably, there will be cases where people are arrested, uh, spies are arrested. But, but even then, there can be costs. Uh, for example, when, back in the 90s, when a couple of Russian illegals were arrested in, in Toronto. At the end of the day, it was not necessarily a bad thing that they went back to Russia because if we had had to go to court and prosecute those people, we might have had to explain how, how why, and when we knew they were Russians. Right. Uh, <clears throat> and that would be, have been at enormous cost. So, right. so success in counterintelligence work is not always public success. Right. No, I think I take that point. Sometimes when you so have a naming hammer... And shaming, naming and shaming can have a cost. Right. Not so much in not so much in terms of internet exploitation or telecommunications exploitation, because the reality is those people are never are never going to be within American jurisdiction. They're never actually going to be prosecuted, even if you've given a name to the press and you've said that right. this person is being indicted. Those people are never going to be in your jurisdiction to, to prosecute. Right. So, uh, in short, then when you have a hammer, not everything should look like a nail. That's right. Fair point. <laughs> point well taken uh, from the, the seasoned judgment that you bring to this conversation. Let me ask you a little bit about President Xi and the nature of the Chinese state. Over the course of your tenure, you've seen Chinese premiers and the way in which they've conducted China's foreign policy, its diplomacy, its security interests on the world stage. Some have argued that China has positioned itself from an idea of strategic patience to pursuing a strategic advantage in the last years, perhaps with the ascendancy of President Donald Trump, a perception of a decline of American power or Western power. When we take a step back from the current crisis between Canada and China, and even the war, the trade war or the Cold War between the United States and China, what do you see President Xi doing next? His economy is in decline. His country is increasingly facing a range of contests for its economic investments around the world and is now dealing with a very aggressive American policy. Do you see President Xi restoring Deng Xiaoping's original idea of uh, economic reform and transformation for the Chinese people or going the other way when it comes to ethnic and nationalist revanchivism? It's uh, stoking these types of fires. What's your assessment of President Xi and what he does now? I think it's hard to hard to judge what they're going to do sure. in the short to medium term. I think the reality is it seems clear that the Chinese have been very careful in the last while not to unleash the nationalist dogs of war, so to speak. Mm -hmm. They they have kept a, a grip on that in the past. They have used that that nationalist yes. focus to deal with other disagreements with other countries. Right. But this time they've been very careful not to do that. Why is that, do you think? It does, it does appear that the Chinese have recognized that they have a, seri a more serious problem than they expected. Indeed. And that they're, they're going to have to address it. 
but it is not yet clear how how far they're prepared to go in addressing it. And I guess to some extent we will not know that until we see what happens in the negotiations with the Americans that are now undergo, uh, underway. Uh, although it is not entirely clear what Mr. Trump wants out of those discussions either. Does he just want to declare victory and move on, or does he actually really want substantive results, uh, or does he even understand what substantive results are? So, so it's not clear the, which way that is going to go, but it is has been pretty clear that, that President Xi is certainly going down a different road than Deng Xiaoping and, and Xi's predecessors. This is the reality of Xi's thought mm-hmm. and the reality of leader for life. This is a different kind of direction than, than we have seen for some time. And it's hard for me, hard for me to see that Deng, that she would step back from that entirely, but he has certainly, they've certainly suffered a check yeah. in the short term. And it's going to be interesting to see what, what happens as a consequence of that. But, but it's hard to believe they would step back entirely from going down the road they want to go down. And the reality is even if their growth has subsided slightly, their growth rate is still well above anything that that we're experiencing, or even the Americans are Triple R's. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, so exactly. Yeah. I'm sure we'd love to have that level of growth in Canada. Yes. So they're suffering, but this isn't necessarily terminal. No, fair point. <clears throat> you know, I think about what some of the recent troubles that China has been afflicted with are. So one is, uh, in this current crisis, the U.S. Department of Justice accusing the Chinese telecom, communication, uh, telecom company Huawei of uh, using front companies in Syria to funnel hundreds of millions of dollars into Iran. More recently, we're seeing a setback for the Chinese relationship with Maduro and his thugs in Venezuela. They had been bankrolling much of the executive and military of the regime of Maduro. And now the world is beginning to say it's time for a different type of government, uh, thanks in large part to Canadian leadership. We are seeing that the one belt, one road investments that China has made across the, south, the small island states of the South Asia Pacific countries, uh, the island countries are being rejected, whether it's in Sri Lanka or the Maldives or so on. The backlash is quite evident to China in terms of its posture around the world. I'm curious, what do you think is the long-term plan for Beijing's perspective about the economic order to come? Do you think that they truly believe that they'll be able to replace the international order that we've all enjoyed, that they've disproportionately benefited from for the last you know, 30, 40 years? Or is it that they're seeking to replace that international order with a whole different identity of a China rising? I think that's, to make that judgment is, is hard at this point. Sure it is, yeah. It's not clear that there are those who believe that China does not actually have hegemonic intent that its goals are narrower, there are some who would be less positive on that subject. I think it's premature to decide, to try and decide that issue. Mm -hmm. I think it's, from a country like Canada's point of view, the only issues really are, we need to be sure that we've thought through the level of engagement we're going to have with China to continue to defend the interests, in my view, we ought to continue to defend our interests in the structure of the world that has existed up until now, right. that has benefited Canada amongst other countries, but Canada as much as anyone, that it is important for us to maintain those structures and to continue to work for those structures, uh, regardless of where the Chinese want to go. But I think we have to be conscious of, of defending those interests and our own interests in working with the Chinese down the road. So I'll ask you one more question exactly on that point. The United States has been historically Canada's largest economic partner, 
our security guarantor. Today, China is the second largest trading partner for Canada, and obviously a, a troubling one at that. A lot of discussion has been in recent times about how we're moving from a, di- a bipolar almost world order, shaped between the contest between the United States and the Soviet Union, into a multipolar one, uh, where Canadians have to ask themselves about our self-reliance as our country, our our interests as a sovereign country. Do we still have our allies and our friends in the immediate future, in the two to five year you know forecast from your perspective, or is it time for Canada to be a lot more? clear-minded, independent-minded about our interests in the world, uh, rather than assuming old alliances and partnerships are there for us for the long term? I'm not sure we can. We should ever assume that, that alliances are there for the, for the rest of time. Yes. So it is important to make sure that we are clear-eyed, and that's what I, argue, I would argue we ought to, be with, ought to be doing with China. Correct. We ought to be clear-eyed about what our interests are, are and what positions we want to defend. Having said that, I don't think that our alliances are about to fade away entirely. Mm-hmm. In some sense, the situation we're in now is simply the result. Everybody has talked about a decline in the United States. In some sense, the last year or two has made it fairly clear that the Americans are still a pretty important part of the world economy and and the world itself, whatever they decide to do. In some sense, it's the Americans who step back, right. which is the most worrying thing from those international right. relationships. But I, there's enough of a decline, if you will, to bring us back to the reality that we need to be clear-eyed about our interests and where we fit in the world and, and what we want to do in the world. I don't think we're in a situation where we should assume that all of our relationships are going to disappear. Mr. Trump will ultimately pass from the scene. Mm-hmm. What will follow him is not entirely clear, but I suspect that it's not going to be exactly like Mr. Trump. And I would expect that we will see a more consistent American approach to relationships around the world. And, and look at yesterday, the, the American intelligence community was testifying before Congress yes. and the Senate. And not only did they agree with, uh, disagree with many of the things that the, prime, the president has said, they made it clear that those international relationships are important. So right. I think it's a little early to declare all of our international relationships dead. I don't think we're in that situation, frankly. Uh, but I think we've had... We've had a bit of a wake-up call, and particularly with respect to China, with recent events. Mm-hmm. I think it's been a useful wake-up call because I think people were living in something of a dream world about relationships with China and where we could go down the road with China. Well, you know, a lot of your colleagues agree with you here at the McDonald-Laurier Institute on exactly that view. This is a decision point, perhaps, for Canadians this year in terms of looking at updating our security instruments, our defense, our intelligence agencies remit, the way in which we collect information and defend and guard Canada against cyber threats. Do you think it's this update needs to be pretty ambitious in preparing for the world to come? It's not clear to me that it, that is that kind of review is on the car, in the cards anytime in the Sh- near future. Should it be? I'm not sure a wholesale review is essential at this point. Right. Uh, I think there are some things on the security front that I find troublesome. Right. Not the least of which is, I think, the government has has moved to create review structures, which, in a sense, I think, are increasingly overburdening the intelligence community to the extent of our the extent of our intelligence community, and are, are at the end of the day poorly thought through. While I may agree that some sort of review involving Parliament is is appropriate, I think to simply lump that in with existing review by CERC and the federal court is at the end of the day inappropriate and not particularly well thought through. 
Thank you. Well, listen, uh, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for indulging our National Security Nerdfest Bonanza here at the McDonald Lorry Institute with your recurring appearances. Everybody, this has been Ward Alcock, former CSIS director, great Canadian patriot. He has so many victories that he can never talk about, but one day we'll wrangle them out of him during our podcast. My name is Shuvalay Majumdar for the McDonald Lorry Institute. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>